This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ages, save 20% on all their products. This show is also brought to you by Element, L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ages and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure, the first clinically tested urolithin A supplement, which is showing tremendous results for mitochondrial health. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Welcome to episode 123 of the Super Age Podcast. This will be dropping on March 1st, 2023. We are back in lower Manhattan, New York City today, and I'm looking out at sidewalks, that have a little dusting of snow on it. I see some of the people out here work in the buildings. Um, they don't really shovel like in, in Utah we shovel. Here they use a broom and they push it off the streets. Um, but it, it, it's very pretty. It's nice to be here. And last night I was walking around and it was sort of somewhere between raining, snowing and hailing, which may sound not too pleasant, but it was actually really beautiful. Um, I, I really like... Uh, the change of season here on the East Coast. It's its really lovely. And, you know, checking the weather back in Utah, they're just getting hammered with snow. i It's just, I don't know where they're going to put it all. I, I think I read that something like 20 from another, another 24 inches in the last like two days. And I think it's going to snow all week. So, wow, just like an unbelievable snow season out there. And I'll be back there next week. Looking forward to that. But I like, uh, you know, as I've mentioned before, I really love this binary lifestyle. I'm, you know, guess what? I'm sort of an extremist. So <laughs> when I'm here in New York, I'm in lower Manhattan. I'm not in some cute neighborhood, you know, out in Brooklyn. Um, and when I'm in Utah, I'm not in Salt Lake City. I'm, you know, up in the mountains. So I, I like those extremes. And I, I tend to like really extreme people um, and extreme experiences, you know, within, within reason. You know, my, my feeling on risk, and I I've, I've perhaps have mentioned this before, is I feel like we all get a risk pie, right? So the, here's your pie of risk, not apple pie or pumpkin pie, you get a risk pie, and you get to divide it up. So if you were going to do all risk all the time, you know, I don't know how long you're going to last, so, you know, I, I think how we allocate that risk is up to all of us, depending on, you know, how much, you know, we're willing to risk. And for myself, I tend to put most of my risk, my like real risk allocation into skiing at high speeds. So, yeah, there's definitely some risk to that. There are definitely consequences. But on the other end of the spectrum, like, I rarely drive my car over 65 miles an hour. And I'm I'm like the most cautious grandmothery driver <laughs> you'll ever meet. And I, you know, I don't do other risky stuff anymore. I don't 
um, climb rock climb anymore. I don't mountain climb. I don't ice climb. Uh, you know, I still uh, like my bike, but I don't do high speed downhill mountain biking. Um, too many injuries. You know, trees don't move. You hit a tree and um, you're going to the hospital. So I just don't I just don't do that anymore. Um, but I, but I think we're all you know it's all up to us. And the thing is, we can't be. And I don't want anyone to be a hundred percent safe because that's just so boring. Who wants to live a life of one hundred percent safety? What does that look like? I mean, you're like the boy in the bubble. Why why do that? That's not what living is about. Living is about being out there in the world, meeting other people, having new experiences, having challenges, and. You know, sometimes there's a little bit of risk in that, be it social risk or physical risk, and, um, you know, have at it. This week on the show, we are so honored to have Dr. Sachi Panda. Sachi is a remarkable human being. He's at the Salk Institute. He's a professor of regulatory biology, and he is the guy to talk to about circadian rhythm. He's the guy whose lab discovered all about circadian eating, about the effects of light on circadian rhythm, and really how our genes and our molecular biology are affected by our circadian rhythms. He is a giant in the field, and I'm, I gotta say, I'm just so happy to have him on, and FYI, he's a heck of a nice guy. So we're gonna get on with Dr. Sachi Panda in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. So why do you need to know that? Well, if you don't have actionable information on what's going on inside your body, you're just guessing, right? You don't know what's going on inside you. And as you're going to hear from Dr. Sachi Panda today, it's all about things that we can take action on, things that we can actually have an effect on. And Inside Tracker gives me that. I take an Inside Tracker Ultimate Test every quarter, and it helps me keep track of my blood lipids on my essential minerals, what's going on inside my body, and then gives me food first, supplement second, recommendations on how to affect these things. Like I tell people all the time, you know how much gas is in your car, but what's going on inside your body? Isn't that maybe a little more important? <laughs> I think you need an Inside Tracker. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist. Save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition and their breakthrough product, MitoPure. We all know how important mitochondrial energy is, and especially maintaining muscle and strength as we age. Urolithin A, which is found in MitoPure, has been clinically proven to increase muscle strength and endurance with no other changes in lifestyle. Urolithin A is essentially upgrading your body's cellular power grid giving your body the energy it needs to optimize. I've been using MitoPure for a few months now, and what I can tell you is there is a noticeable change in the way my muscles re-energize after I use them. What that means is, say I'm involved in some intense activity in the gym or maybe some sporting activity. Normally, the next time I did it, my I would be you know kind of tired. I, I would be sort of gassed out. That doesn't seem to happen with this. Um, and all I can imagine is because my mitochondrial grid has essentially been upgraded, it's not just my muscles that are getting upgraded. It's all the other cells in my body because they're all powered by mitochondria. 
Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. A quick reminder, uh, right after my chat with Sachin, there's going to be that little segment we do called Just Try This, those little tidbits that maybe help you live a little healthier, a little longer, a little happier. Um, so check that out right after my conversation with Dr. Sachin Panda, and we're going to call Sachin right now. Hello, Sachin. I'm so delighted to have you here. I'm so happy to be on your podcast. Where where are you today? I'm actually in San Diego. Um, I'm in the Salk Institute where I'm a professor and my lab works on circadian rhythms. So I'm in my office. <laughs> I love that building. Who did Louis Kahn did that building, right? Yeah, so Louis Kahn did that building. And this is very interesting because we know that the our brain is influenced by the building. And he recognized it. So he wanted to build a very inspirational building that will influence everybody who walks into the building. And it actually works. (laughs) So every day when I walk in, just the view um, inspires me and everybody feels the same way. And in fact, uh, this has been um, recognized as one of the masterpiece of modern architecture and it's really an honor to be in Louis Kahn's building. There's so much to talk about uh, circadian wise, but what you just said, I think is profound that buildings influence how we think. And I, and people often have that reverse. They think they can by force of will, um, you know, it doesn't matter where they are, but it's not true. No, it's uh, only if you, Yeah, there are many times everybody experiences that. They walk into a building and sometimes they feel inspired and sometimes they feel kind of (laughs) a little down. And the very simple example that people can have is actually buildings with very high ceiling inspire us. Buildings with direction where there there is light at the end of one end of the building also give us sense of direction. So that's why all religious places do have light coming from one end. And when you close the sense of direction by blocking all the windows, then surprisingly, we don't know why, we also lose the sense of time. So the sense of direction and sense of time are intertwined. So when people go into a casino, which usually don't have windows, you lose the sense of time. <laughs> We're going to have to do another podcast, um, Sacha, on architecture. I had no idea this was going to go that way, but I, I love this. Um, but let's, um, I want to move on to your, um, what you're known for, which is um, circadian rhythm. Tell us, wh- what is this thing? People throw that name out a lot. What What exactly is this? Yeah, so circadian rhythms are, internal timetables that are present in every cell, even every organ in our body, including the brain. And circadian rhythms, you can say, constitutes the master timetable that guides what time of the day or night each of our 20,000 genes turn on and off so that every function of our cell or organs is tuned for peak performance. What do I mean by it is this timed activities in our body improve our immune system to better fight infection, 
they accelerate repair function to recover from injuries. They optimize brain function to elevate emotional and intellectual health. And circadian rhythms also supercharge our metabolism, particularly detoxification, repair of our DNA, so that we can live at a reduced risk for many chronic diseases that usually increase with age. So circadian rhythms are essentially the master plan that are already in our, written into our DNA in every cell. And if we follow this timetable, then we can live few years longer disease-free and we'll have peak physical, emotional, and intellectual performance at every age of our life. And how do I get the timetable? How do I know what it is? So that's the thing that the, um, that's what we are learning over the last 25 to 30 years uh, at molecular level. But before that, um, people, particularly physicians, endocrinologists, they had recognized this. So for example, people who worked on uh, blood glucose regulation, they figured out in 70s that if you go to a doctor's office and do a glucose tolerance test, where you go to drink a sugary drink and then figure out how high your glucose remains for the next two hours, then surprisingly, people had found that in the first half of the day, if you drink a sugary drink, then your blood glucose will come back to normal level within 90 minutes or so. And for the same person, after the same number of fasting hours, if the GTT or glucose tolerance test is done in the evening after say 7 or 8 p.m., then glucose levels will remain high for a very long time. And if someone is pre-diabetic, then he or she may be even diagnosed as diabetic if the glucose tolerance test is done in the evening. So there was even a term called evening diabetes. So this tells us that we are designed to eat more carbohydrate uh, in the first half of the day, not in the second half of our day or late into the night. So similarly, people, endocrinologists also figured out that our growth hormone uh, spikes few minutes um, after we get into sleep. And if we sleep at the same habitual time every day, then we get the benefit of growth hormone. So we, the only thing we have to do is go to bed at the same time every day. And then the timetable takes care of growth hormone spike. So similarly, over many, over last 50 years, I would say endocrinologists and physiologists, they figured out that our body is programmed with this timetable and we just have to follow it. And you asked a very Interesting question, how do we know what is the timetable? What is written for us to do at what time? And it boils down to connecting this timetable to what we know the three foundations of health. That is sleep, nutrition, and physical activity or exercise. So that means when and how long we should sleep, when we should start eating, and stop eating, and when we should do exercise. And once we do these three at the 
at the prescribed time or what is written in our DNA, then everything else will fall into its place. So I, I guess the nature of my question is, um, is your circadian rhythm, your DNA timetable the same as mine? Or is there like how much, like I know people like to exercise in the morning. People, some people like to exercise in the afternoon. I don't know. Um, is is this, what are the similarities in the timetables? It's more or less similar. I mean, we haven't seen big differences in timetable. Uh, the point is our timetable or our circadian rhythm is, first thing is the rhythms are very close to 24 hours, give or take 15 or 20 minutes uh, from person to person. And then second is um, for most of us, we have been designed, we have been programmed to sleep at night, not necessarily from sun, sunset to sunrise, um, but suppose say for an average person who is living plus or minus 30 degree, 35 degree north or south of the equator, it may be three to four hours after sunset, we typically go to bed and then be in bed for eight to nine hours so that we get enough sleep and then we wake up, uh, we are programmed to wake up around dawn or a little bit after that. Um, so that program is in almost everybody's DNA. And uh, similarly, when we should eat and when we should exercise, um, those are also roughly the same. What happens is people always say, hey, if I'm exercising in the morning, am I harming myself? Uh, the point is no, because any exercise is better than no exercise. Um, but then if you are pressed for time, and if you want to get the maximum bang for your buck, then it's possible that instead of doing one hour exercise in the morning, for example, you can get away with the same benefit with 30 or 45 minutes in the afternoon. That's kind of the general way of saying it. The other thing that surprising findings in recent years, what we have found is for people who are trying to control their blood pressure, who are trying to control their blood sugar with exercise, uh, afternoon exercise seems to be more effective in reducing blood pressure and also controlling blood glucose much better than the identical exercise done in the morning. Of course, this is very preliminary. Um, this is coming out only in the last three to four years. Typically what happens is scientists do these experiments on a small number of people, a dozen or two dozen, find some evidence and then try to expand it on more number of people in multiple locations to see how generalizable this trend is. But if we go back to, for example, the programs in circadian rhythm, when we should be doing exercise, we also know that our muscles are more primed to soak up more glucose with less insulin towards the end of the day because we are likely to be more active towards the end of the day. We are programmed that way. Our ancestors, our um, hunter-gatherers, they used to run back home before sunset. So that's why we're designed that way. Our body temperature is relatively higher. So you can get to your better exercise with less warm-up in the afternoon than in the morning. That means our muscles, tendons, and joints are more flexible. So you have a slightly less risk for injury 
if you do exercise in the afternoon. So all these basic science findings point to the idea that, yes, afternoon exercise may be better for health. But at the same time, I, I must say that any exercise is better than no exercise. And if you want to get the best, then maybe afternoon exercise uh, is better. So you mentioned that, you know, there's not much difference between people um, yeah. with these rhythms. Um, we've had people on the show talk about sleep chronotypes and some people tend to be, you know, they get up very early or then maybe they get up at, you know, sort of normal time or they, they're most active in the evening or these, these poor people who have the dolphin chronotype and they, they're all over the place. You don't want to be one of them. Um, how does, how do these sort of, is this the same ballpark we're talking about here or is this an entirely different thing? Yeah. So, um, when it comes to chronotype, it's a little bit tricky because, um, for example, if we go back to, um, populations where there is no electricity, there is no fatty food and people are not commuting, they don't have, they're not consuming excessive coffee or tea. Um, we don't see these chronotypes. Mm. There is no profound differences in chronotypes. Um, many people throw this term, oh, one third are early, one third are late, one third in the middle. Sorry, there is no evidence that these three types exist in populations who have no access to electricity, caffeine, stress, commute, and all this stuff. So then the question is, why do we see this? And our sleep and circadian rhythms are affected by many factors. And those factors include light, um, the known factors, means there may be something unknown that we don't know yet, light, caffeine, and of course, stress. And when it comes to light, we know that it's difficult to fall asleep in a lighted room because light suppresses our melatonin level. Melatonin is good for promotes sleep. What we know is people can vary as much as tenfold in their light sensitivity. So it's possible that different people just have different light sensitivity. That's why even the same dim light in the evening can keep them awake, whereas some other people can um, actually tolerate evening light and their melatonin levels will go up and they'll, they'll fall to sleep at a regular time. Uh, so we don't understand this well because it's not much research on light sensitivity in terms of, say, melatonin suppression in people who self-report to be early or late chronotype. So similarly, caffeine has a huge impact on sleep. And of course, when we don't sleep, what do we do? We, people who are were going to bed, say, at 1 o'clock in the morning, they're not sitting in dark room. They're actually exposed to light. So light itself can, again, disrupt circadian rhythm and sleep. And we now know that people have different tolerance to caffeine. Some people can break down nearly half of their caffeine intake by 
six hours, but still, there is still <laughs> nearly half left. And we still don't understand whether people actually differ in their sensitivity to caffeine. So one is breaking down how quickly we can break down caffeine. But even if there is a few milligrams of caffeine left, if the person is more sensitive to caffeine, if the brain is more sensitive to caffeine, then that itself can delay. So these are there are many unknowns. So that's why I always say that to figure out whether you are really genetically programmed or not, it's best to spend a few, at least a week, uh, under dim light, withdraw from coffee, tea, dark chocolate, energy drinks, alcohol also, and then see what is your inborn chronotype. And when people do this, and there are actually research papers where people have done this, they find that even people who self-report to be very late chronotype, they turn out to be normal. <laughs> they actually can go to bed and fall asleep um, by 9, 9.30. And myself, during grad school, I don't remember, there are maybe very few days when I went to sleep before one o'clock in the morning. And I always thought that maybe I'm just late. And then after I stopped drinking too much of caffeine, <laughs> I learned how to control lighting. Um, I know that if I stop caffeine, it's very hard for me to stay awake past 9.30 p.m. And few weeks in a year, I just withdraw from coffee and I go back to my quote-unquote early chronotype. This is fascinating. I, one of the things that I'm sort of linking on here, and I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but the the light effect and the differences in the thickness of people's eyelids um, yeah. that I, I have to, I sleep with a sleep mask, like no matter where I am, because I, I tend to be very sensitive to whatever. Um, yeah. And that that, it might not actually be a chronotype issue. It might just be uh, eye, eye light sensitivity or eyelid thickness or something like this. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's something that is genetic or that we are designed in some way that's not directly connected to our sleep and circadian rhythm cycle, but these are the factors that affect our sleep mm -hmm. and circadian rhythm cycle in modern society where we have light, where we have many psychoactive molecules from alcohol to caffeine. So um, you mentioned um, carbohydrate better in the morning, um, possibly exercise middle of the afternoon. Um, I've sort of personally noticed that my, my sort of cardio training is better in the morning and my strength training is better in the afternoon. I don't know. That just might be the way my day is. Uh, yeah. But yes, yeah, so that's what I say. That there is, there is uh, you know, there is general trend, and and then another thing is, um, you may be completely healthy. That's fine. And the and these two stories are the two examples that I gave relates to blood pressure regulation right. and and blood sugar regulation among people who are. Um, hypertensive or have type 2 diabetes. And we didn't know, uh, or I actually, I should have gone back to those papers to see whether they, the subjects in the studies, they felt like what you report. 
uh, they're feeling much better doing the cardio in the morning and wait in the afternoon. Uh, whether, and whether that feeling translates to um, clinically relevant outcomes, because sometimes we have to do things that we don't like to get a clinically relevant outcome. <laughs> my, my, one of my favorite phrases, Sasha, is feelings are not facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so um, uh, let's talk about cognitive stuff. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in terms of circadian, um, when does my brain work best? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, you can easily feel that way that, um, for example, if you have a good night of sleep, then typically you feel more productive or have much better executive function where you have to take in a lot of information, compute them, and then this make a decision. So those things are usually much better um, in the first half of the day. It doesn't mean right after waking up, you should be doing that. But, uh, there are some studies done and it's somewhere one or two hours, sometimes three hours after waking up. And usually it wins around lunch time. So the best time to have your most important meetings is between breakfast and lunch time. And then in the late in the afternoon, your brain is kind of in a autopilot mode. So you know, things that don't need too much of thinking, routine work, data entries, and routine stuff, and that you have to tick mark those may be much better in the late second half of the day. Again, these are very um, generalizable comments. But at the same time, people always say that they are less disturbed right after waking up, which is true. Means if you turn off your emails and notifications, and there's quietness, you can get into a trance-like state and get a lot of stuff done. Uh, our creativity, uh, there's some studies showing up, creative ability is actually much better right after we wake up. Um, but I know it's really hard to go back, what is creativity, connect that to brain function and see whether we can find a signature. Um, but it makes sense from many ways. And if people think that, they have enough sleep because one thing we we have a pandemic of sleep deprivation so but those who are lucky enough to have enough sleep um yes uh, they can be more creative in the morning and then more complex executive function between breakfast and lunch time or roughly three hours after to six hours after wake up time and then more routine stuff in the late afternoon evening so this circadian rhythm that we speak about, how malleable is this? If I, I'm in New York today, if I go to Europe tomorrow, I'm going to be a mess. So how, like, how easily can we move these things around? And and, and is it destructive to us to move them around? Well, in nature, what happens is, um, if we think about it, and and. We have been on this planet for 200,000 years, out of which 199,800 years or so, we didn't have the ability to move one time zone in one day. Right? The ability to move three or more time zones in a day is only, for a lot of people, happened only in the last 100 years. 
So that means we are not designed to adapt to a very rapid change in time. And now if we go back to the molecular and cellular underpinning of that and why it is so, um, the circadian rhythms are malleable. They can be changed slowly um, because if they cannot be changed, we won't be existing on this planet. The reason is between summer and winter, there is a good change in day length, and it can be as much as six, seven hours, depending on where you live, uh, how far away from the equator you live. So that means we and almost all animals, we are designed to adapt to that small change in day length that happens every day, because we have to keep in mind, our sunrise to sunrise is not exactly 24 hours. If you go into the sunrise time calendar, you will see it's not exactly 24 hours. It's slightly different. And the northern latitude you go, it can be extreme, few minutes, whereas close to the equator, it can be few seconds. So that means our brain, our circadian rhythm is designed to adjust few minutes every day. But now imagine there's a stormy night, there's a lot of lightning, happening in the middle of the night. And we should not be designed to reset our clock thinking that that will be the new day <laughs> next day. So that's why our brain is designed in a way that if you disrupt our rhythm by exposing us to a lot of light, all of a sudden, a brain will say, okay, let me think, is it reproducible? Is it going to happen next day again and again? And if so, then I'll slowly sift. And for most people, that pace of the maximum pace of shifting our brain clock is roughly one hour in every, for one day for one hour in change in time zone. So that means if you are flying across six time zones, um, for your brain to completely reset, it might take six days some people might be a little faster. They will say in three or four days they are reset. And some people, they can actually take up to a month. Some people actually report they cannot adjust to the change in um, daylight saving time for almost six months. So there is individual variability. But this is the reason behind why our brain is not wired to rapidly reset to a new time job because it wants that validation that it is actually a real change. It's not one night you went to party and then there was some light and you came back. So let's talk about what happens if we disrupt our rhythm. So, you know, normally I go to bed about maybe like 9.30. If yeah. I decide to like, you know, go wild and go to bed at 2.30, um, and then I'm, I'm not only going to be sleep deprived the next day, I'm going to, my rhythm's going to be off. So what, what happens? What are the, what are the consequences of people who like, I can only do that. I'm not a party animal. So I do that like twice a year, yeah. <laughs> but some people, they do this, you know, frequently. What are the health consequences of that? Yeah. So it's uh, almost similar to saying, you know, somebody goes to school or say college, there are certain classes at certain time. And then the question is, if I don't show up for the class, what happens? 
you're not going to get an F grade right away. <laughs> but the point is, if you don't show up frequently, um, your grades will take a hit. So similarly, let's come back to what is the function of circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms have few functions. One is anticipation. Your body anticipates certain things and prepares for those events. The biggest event in our uh, every day is waking up. Waking up is a big thing. Our body was lying idle for several hours and it has to wake up, get out of the bed, start walking, running, chasing, um, getting ready for work or whatever you are doing. It's a huge change in physiology. And we just can't be reactive. So that's why a blood pressure begins to rise an hour or two before we wake up, or breathing begins to rise, or cortisol levels rises um, many hours before we wake up. All these preparations are happening for us to wake up. Then the question is, for example, if you wake up too early, the, the morning when you are trying to go to catch a flight and you're waking up two or three hours earlier by setting an alarm clock, you wake up and you feel groggy, you feel like, okay, so even after a couple of cups of coffee, you are still not ready. So that means the body's physiology, metabolism, hormone levels, we're not ready for us to wake up and we woke up and we feel that. So similarly, our digestive system also produces digestive enzymes, digestive juice and acid to digest our food. And that happens, that preparation happens few hours before we eat our habitual breakfast. Like if we eat breakfast around the same time, suppose say between 7.30 and 8, I eat my breakfast every morning. Maybe around 6 or 6.30, my stomach is preparing. And that means if I don't eat breakfast at 7.30 or 8, the timing passes, stomach was ready, didn't get food, and then I ate breakfast at 11, there's some discomfort. It's not going to kill me. But then if I keep on changing my breakfast time from one day to another, then my physiology, my metabolism is not optimum. And in fact, we have even gone back to very carefully controlled calorie restriction study that ran for two years. And we pulled out people's um, food diary and then what we find is people who reduced their calorie, but they had different breakfast time changing by two hours or more from one day to another, they actually didn't get the full benefit of calorie restriction. And similarly, there are many evidence in animal studies that if we keep changing eating time, particularly the first meal, then that can have adverse effect. Um, so this is the body is prepared to do certain thing. And if we don't do at the right time within an hour window, say, if we delay it or advance it, then we are not at our peak or optimum brain health or physical health. And now we can go back and ask, well, if we, and similarly, um, 
you know, suppose say you stay awake late into the night, um, then few things can happen. One is, one thing is, if you, for example, if I stay too late into the night, two or three hours beyond my habitual sleep time, um, and I don't have opportunity in the morning to actually wake up late, then I'm reducing my sleep. And what happens is our brain immediately thinks, I don't know how long this guy is going to stay awake. And I should make this guy eat some more food because it can be a long night. So then if you have this food craving and many people who stay awake late into the night, whether you're pulling an all-nighter for finishing an assignment or you're on the road, we all we have all experienced this, that a brain just craves for more food. A brain is craving for food, but at the same time, we know that the stomach is not ready for it because the kitchen has her down. So then you eat that late night food, and then next morning you feel this food hangover. That means you ate, but your digestive system was not ready to digest it because your stomach literally sleeps at night. That means the digestive juice production reduces, and as I said, um, insulin production also reduces at night. And then peristalsis are the movement of our intestine to move the food down the intestinal tract also slows down. So your brain is craving for food, your stomach is not ready, and the next day you feel food hangover, and then if you're sleep deprived, the next day your brain also is not good in making all of these executive functions because executive function is deciding on many inputs and figuring out what to do. And one of the big things that our brain does throughout the day is decision on eating. <laughs> like you might think that we are eating three meals, but think about it. Every time there is food, we're deciding, should we eat? Should our hand reach out and grab that candy, that donut, that's coffee? Should we add more sugar to the coffee? How much should I drink? Um, all of these decisions go haywire, so then we end up eating more or eating unhealthy. It also affects our, since our executive function is compromised, that means forget about doing math test. Many of our executive functions also relate to interpersonal relationship. Your spouse might ask you to go take care of X and Y and you're irritated and you cannot process that and you can say, why can't you do this? <laughs> or your voice tone might raise. <laughs> or, and those things are very damaging and uh, it damages your social life too. So the bottom line is when we don't do these very simple things, particularly sleep and food at the habitually set time, um, it can create discomfort and reduce our optimum performance. And if it continues for many days or years, for example, those who do shift work, um, they are at a very high risk for many chronic disease. And they themselves, they say that they feel like they're aging faster. And I'd be interested to see, you know, people are figuring out this chronological age and biological age. It will be interesting to see um, whether somebody does a study on 
shift workers like firefighters, cops, um, even doctors and uh, service workers, truck drivers to see whether they are in fact aging faster than their chronological age. Um, but we have seen again and again a risk for many cardiovascular disease and affective disorders of mental health. Um, those risks go up tremendously when people do shift work. There are certain kinds of cancers. Those are also associated with those risks for those cancers are associated with shift work. And in fact, the World Health Organization has put out a statement saying that shift work is a class four carcinogen. So that means it can, it itself, this is one lifestyle that is equivalent to chemicals that cause cancer. Of course, not as serious, but that still we have to keep that in mind. I find that um, it, that makes sense to me, but I'm also um, looking at you as a doctor and thinking, <laughs> huh, <laughs> what are you guys doing to your interns? <laughs> yeah, so that's why, you know, I always say, whenever there is a story about the centenarian, if you go back and look at, it's very rare to find a airline pilot, firefighter, or professors or physicians living to the age of 110. It's usually people who have very simple lifestyle or they change their lifestyle after they retired at the age of 50 or 60, and then they went back to a regular schedule. They're not the ones who are flying around the world in every four weeks or two weeks. They're living to the age of 110. Um, which brings me to the question of the, the intersection of age and circadian rhythm. That, you know, people, does, does age, What's the age's effect on this? Do we, is people send team to wake up earlier or is this a, a different phenomenon? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there is a very doc, well-documented effect of uh, age on um, sleep time and also wake up time. And it seems like it's not the age, but actually it's the effect of sex hormones on circadian rhythm. So, for example, um, we know that when kids reach puberty, then the circadian rhythm is changed in some way. We don't know exactly how. Um, nobody can put a finger and say, this is how the sex hormone changed the circadian rhythm. But what we know from large-scale data collected from thousands of people is we tend to wake up late. So you can say, for example, kids become late chronotype. Um, high school students are likely to go to bed late and wake up late. We don't know whether that's the effect on light or something else, but the output, what really matters is they become late chronotype. And then as we age, and particularly after for women, after they hit menopause or men equivalent is say 50, 55, we again tend to be early chronotype. We tend to wake up early. We just sleep like babies. So <laughs> wake up too many times at night and then finally we are up <laughs> at sunrise. I mean, but is there any kind of data or studies out there on the, the differences? Do you do like an AB women who've done HRT and, and not? 
Now there is not much data because hmm. you know this is and this is an area circadian rhythm although it's it's very popular now uh, when it comes to research on circadian rhythm um, I would say throughout the world there may be only a few hundred four or five hundred labs who work on circadian rhythms at molecular levels who can answer these kind of questions and how these numbers compare so for example if you go to a If you go to New York City, New York City has more scientists working on cancer than all circadian rhythm researchers throughout the world. So we we have a lot of questions to answer, but we don't have the means to do it. And also sometimes the uh, these experiments are difficult. What we know is as we get older, I told you about the growth hormone story, how growth hormone spikes after we go to bed. We know that as we get older, a growth hormone spike becomes smaller and smaller. And on top of that, people who are obese, the growth hormone is even smaller. Um, so this is one way we can, we knew from many years ago, three decades ago, that as we get older, not only our sleep structure um, dampens so that we find it difficult staying asleep throughout the night. And we are also likely to wake up early. And there is also a hormonal relation to it. Um, For example, the growth hormone spike becomes smaller and smaller. As we age, our circadian rhythm dampens. So that means our body actually doesn't have the right timing cue when to do what. But it's not the end of the story because we are actually the master controller of our circadian rhythm. In fact, our daily habits are. So for example, if we just follow five or six simple habits, we can sustain and nurture a healthy circadian rhythm that will in turn help us to live a long, healthy lifespan. And what are those six, five or six things that we should do? So number one, be on time for your sleep, which means try to go to bed at a habitual fixed time and then stay in bed for at least eight hours. Because when you stay in bed for eight hours, then you get at least seven hours of restorative sleep. And during that sleep, our circadian clock will help produce enough growth hormone to repair all the damages that we have done to our body during the day. It helps to drain all the toxic chemicals from our brain and also helps us repair and rejuvenate our brain cells. And when the brain is repaired, it also helps repair the rest of the body. Then number two, after waking up in the morning, try not to eat or drink something that has energy for at least one or two hours. Because that's the time when our stress hormone reaches its peak level and our sleep hormone melatonin has not come down completely. And these two hormones, when they're high, they also adversely affect how our body handles glucose. So our body is not ready to digest 
and use nutrition properly for the first one or two hours in the morning. And then number three is to eat breakfast at a consistent time because breakfast is the cue to the rest of our body clock to start the day. So our body clock actually gets its cue for the beginning of the day from our breakfast and our brain clock gets the cue from light. And then after breakfast, try to eat everything within 8, 9, 10, or maximum 12 hours because our circadian clock has programmed us to properly digest and assimilate nutrition from our food for this window of time, a maximum of 12 hours. And then number four is uh, during the day, try to go outdoor for at least 30 minutes to get some bright light because bright light resets our brain clock, reduces nightly hormone melatonin so that we are more alert. And bright light also directly reduces depression and improves our executive function or alertness. So bright light is an antidepressant. It's plentiful and free. You just have to step outside. And if you can't go outdoor because it's too cold or rainy, then even sitting next to a large window for breakfast or lunch is enough. The number five, of course, don't forget to do some exercise. Um, and if you're cramped for time, then an afternoon uh, exercise is much better because that's when you have less risk for injury and afternoon exercise helps to reduce blood pressure and better manage uh, blood glucose. And then number six, two to three hours before your bedtime, try to avoid bright light so that your sleep hormone melatonin can begin to rise and you can get a better night's sleep. And also try to avoid food because eating food very close to your bedtime can interfere with your sleep. So with this sleep, with the six simple habits, you can keep your uh, circadian rhythm on time and we can avoid a lot of chronic disease and stay healthy for a very long time. So now coming to other question, how our circadian rhythms in different organs actually is. Um, there's a beautiful study that came out in um, the prestigious science magazine a few weeks ago, um, looking at population data, gene expression from different parts of the, of the body. This is mostly from cadaver samples or donor, organ donors samples. And what is interesting is, was our vascular system, our blood circulation system, the plumbing that is throughout our body, that seems to be less rhythmic. The circadian rhythm seems to dampen substantially as we get older. And why this is important, if we think about it, a lot of our diseases are linked to this circulatory system, either directly or indirectly. Um, stroke, heart attack, atherosclerosis, all of these are linked to circulatory dysfunction. Similarly, many inflammatory diseases also happen that way. And in fact, if the plumbing is leaky, then our blood-brain barrier breaks down 
and the brain gets exposed to a lot of toxins, also the chemicals that it is not supposed to see. Uh, so that was kind of a very interesting finding. Nobody had anticipated. And so we'll see how circadian or sustaining circadian rhythm by various practices can help delay the aging of endothelial cells of this circulating system or plumbing. Um, this is a question for you. So um, if people are not falling asleep um, or they're, they're waking up, I guess that's, that's the complaint, right? People wake up in the night. Um, would doing something like uh, taking time-release melatonin is, you know, how is, is the melatonin system, does that interact with the sex hormones? Am I just making this up? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I don't know whether that actually <laughs> okay. the melatonin. It, so a very simple question you can ask is whether by taking melatonin one can delay menopause. And oh. we don't know. And uh, I don't recommend anybody to try that experiment because we think that melatonin is a very benign since it's over the counter, it's almost like a painkiller pill and one should take as he or she wishes. It's actually not true. Only in the, U in the US, melatonin is not controlled, but in many other countries, it is very tightly controlled. And we always think that melatonin um, will make us sleep better, which is true in most cases. But at the same time, we don't know how much of melatonin is good for us. Um, these days, it's very difficult to find a melatonin pill that has less than five milligram melatonin. Whereas if you dial back 20 years ago, I clearly remember when I was a student, uh, it was difficult to find five milligram pill because most of the melatonins were one to three milligrams. And there is not much research to see why uh, they should sell five milligram pills. The bottom line is, if you take five milligram, you can make an elephant to sleep. I mean, I would say that most people will sleep. But a lot of people are also very sensitive to melatonin. They can get away with half a milligram um, melatonin. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is what we did not know 20 years ago. And now we know from actually human studies, not animal, this comes all from human studies, is melatonin has a significant impact on our insulin production and release. So that means melatonin, just like it makes our brain to sleep, um, it can make our pancreas to sleep. So that means the receptor for melatonin is also present on our pancreatic islet cells that produce insulin in response to glucose. And when melatonin is high and it's engaged to its receptor in pancreas, then it reduces its ability to produce enough insulin in response to the same glucose. Um, so now let's do the math. We know that those who are not taking melatonin supplement, uh, all the healthy people out there who are not on melatonin pill, we start to produce our melatonin 
couple of hours before going to bed. So if I go to bed at say 10 o'clock, my melatonin production to detectable levels begin at eight o'clock. And if that melatonin is going to bind to my insulin producing cells and inhibit insulin production or reduce insulin production, then if I eat something, even at 7.30 p.m., then it'll be very difficult for me to control my blood glucose. Um, whereas if I eat the same meal at six o'clock when there is no melatonin, then it'll be relatively better for me because I can produce enough insulin to take care of that glucose. So you, you just answered the question about why you should eat carbohydrate in the morning and not in the evening. I never yeah. knew why. Now you now I know. <laughs> no, this is this is one. There are many many mechanisms, and this is one of them. And uh, and also this is late in the night. We're talking about two hours before your bedtime. So the second thing is in the morning. If I wake up at say six o'clock, and if I am going to the backyard to check my garden or um, I'm just walking outside, um, then that bright light will reduce production of melatonin from my pineal gland and my blood melatonin levels will drop. So the blood melatonin level is dropping because light stops production of melatonin from the pineal, not because light is breaking down melatonin in my blood. And this is a very important point to keep in mind. So that means after waking up, it takes an hour or two for my melatonin levels to drop to baseline. So now you take a person who is taking slow-release melatonin at bedtime. That slow-release melatonin is also staying in the system way beyond the person wakes up. No bright light is going to make any dent on that blood melatonin level. So what it means is that person is also likely to have a really bad insulin response, even in the first half of the day. So you might sleep better, but your diabetes might get worse. So Ooh. that's why, <laughs> that's why, you ask all the sleep researchers who work on melatonin, I bet no one takes melatonin every day. Maybe they'll take melatonin once in a while when they're jet lagged, but none of us <laughs> will take melatonin on a regular basis. Um, yeah, I've had uh, sleep researchers on the program and they all are just horrified by this, especially with kids, giving kids like these massive melatonin yeah. doses. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, um, as, as we finish up here, the what are you seeing out there in useful applications of medical technology? Because there's, there's a lot of sort of fatty stuff out there that people, you know, kind of you, you, it comes in the news. But what are you seeing that's really going to move the needle in terms of health span going forward? I guess the, uh, I'll give you one example how we have come, and then you can make the <laughs> extrapolation. Um, think about diabetes care, say, 30 years ago. 
Um, somebody gets a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes um, during annual checkup, mostly. If they're lucky enough to do the annual checkup every year, then I'll say, well, your fasting blood glucose is more than 125 milligram per deciliter. We doubt you have type 2 diabetes. Why don't you come back for a postprandial glucose tolerance test? And then they will diagnose with, with um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And you are on the drug. You, sometimes you forget your drug. Sometimes you don't. And you are eating. The physician tells you to eat certain things. And many times we forget to eat correctly. And there is no way to check our blood glucose level unless we go back to the clinic and do the test. There was no home test available. So now you dial back so 20 years ago when this um, at-home blood sugar strip scan and we can take a drop of blood and figure out how much is the blood sugar level and that changed diabetes care. People who are more careful or people who are at a very high risk, their fasting blood glucose was more than 200 or 300. Every morning they could get up and check or at least even if they're checking once or twice a week, that was tenfold more checking than just going back in every three months or six months. And that actually moved the needle. A lot of people became more curious or conscious about their blood glucose. Now you fast forward maybe five years ago when continuous blood glucose meters came. And now, at least for type 1 diabetics, it's a huge change in care. Because in every single hour, they know where they are. And also the algorithms are changing so they can also see where they're trending so that they can take action before they become hypoglycemic. Um, and for many type 2 diabetics or pre-diabetics, we can wear one. I mean, once a year, I usually wear one. I'm not diabetic, but I'm just curious about which food that good for me and how much I should eat. I cannot think of measuring my blood glucose every 15 minutes for 14 days. So two years ago, sorry, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And this is going to move the needle. So um, similarly, like home blood pressure monitors, um, those are big, technological changes, that changed needle. If you come to like medical technology, there are so many medical technologies I own. <laughs> it's really hard for me to comment, uh, but few things that uh, come to my mind which will um, make a huge change is if we think about when a person goes to clinic, goes to a hospital and we make a diagnosis. There are a lot of diagnoses you can do from blood. There are a lot of diagnoses you can just do from vitals. But then the biggest thing that has happened in the last 50 years is medical imaging. Our ability to look inside a human body beyond X-ray. means If you think about X-ray, X-ray actually changed bone health, bone care <laughs> tremendously. But MRI, CT scan, all these scans, they actually change. But the point is, those are very expensive. We don't have a portable MRI, for example. 
a lot of countries which where more than 50% of adults don't have access to a MRI within 100 miles of where they live because of the cost and the bulkiness. Now, I think if there are companies that are coming up with small portable MRI, that will change medical care, particularly diagnosis, looking inside the brain, looking inside the body to see what is happening. So now we combine that with other blood tests. Blood tests are changing very rapidly. For example, a few years ago, we used to say cholesterol, you measure your total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol. And now we are seeing that that has transformed. Now we can go back to NMR lipoprotein profile and find different size of cholesterol particles, how many numbers are there, how many ApoB molecules are there. Even LP little a, the LPA, this is becoming interesting. That's going to change better diagnosis and prediction of dyslipidemia. And if you think about imaging for the heart, lung, and cancer, and then blood test, better blood test for dyslipidemia, cancer and heart disease. Uh, number two and number one cause of death or disability throughout the world. So these things will improve. And then the liquid biopsy, which is figuring out what is in the blood, uh, whether there is tumor cells or cancer cells that are in the blood or how the cancer is doing, that's very profound. It's not only for diagnosis. Let's go back to somebody who already had one round of cancer. We know that there are certain kind of cancer where people go through chemo or surgery, but they don't know whether the cancer is coming back. And in that case where the physician, the oncologist knows what kind of cancer the person was just treated for, then in those cases, particularly liquid biopsy, where we can look into the blood and see whether there is can DNA from tumors floating around, then that can detect, uh, sense whether the tumor is growing way before the medical imaging techniques can detect the tumor. Uh, so for secondary prevention of cancer, this will be very important. And then we got to see how, whether we can do primary prevention. Can I go? get my liquid biopsy done after the age of 50 every year, every other year. And of course, initially there might be sensitivity, specificity issues, whether I'm getting false positive, false negative, but that's all is going to resolve quickly. Just like in other blood tests, um, the first five to 10 years is refinement and then it becomes a general practice. So these are some of my some of my hopes. <laughs> there may be other, other things that I don't know. But there's one thing that I also am very interested in from circadian point of view, that is care in ICU. When somebody goes into uh, intensive care unit, that's the worst place for circadian rhythm. The lights, most of the ICUs, the lights are on 24-7. Uh, the patient is fed through a tube 24-7 and then is poked 
multiple times and an average ICU patient gets less than five hours of sleep and that's also interrupted sleep. And in that case, if we just take a healthy person and put that healthy person in the ICU condition, that person will not remain healthy after a week. And uh, there will be many physiological and metabolic complications, also brain complications. So that's why we see that nearly one third of ICU patients develop delirium. They cannot, their brain just doesn't, is out of control. So now the question is, can we come up with better ways to manage the ICU, to bring back some sense of circadian rhythm, that's one. And second is, who are the patients who are going to ICU? These are very seriously ill patients. And in the US nearly, somewhere between 10 to 17 million people go through sepsis and then they go to hospital for some kind of treatment. And unfortunately, a good proportion of them, somewhere between 10 to 15% actually die within, um, during the hospital stay before they are even released. And then those who get released, there is a very high chance that they can, they will go back to ICU or hospitalized in the next one year. So they go into this cycle. And in this case, we don't know whether the circadian disruptions that they have in ICU actually continues after they're released mm. and whether we can bring back their circadian rhythm by better sleep-wake cycle, better management of lighting at home, and a little bit of maybe exercise in the late afternoon and eating fasting rhythm so that we can reduce the rehospitalization. Because when you're talking about 10 to 17 million people, even if we benefit 10% of them, that's million lives and that's billions of dollars. And the reason why I'm hopeful that evidence comes from a very opposite spectrum of our age. So that's neonatal ICU where babies who are born premature, they are admitted. They're also under constant light. And there is a study, there was a study done in Mexico City where they randomly assigned 60 plus neonatal ICU patients or premature babies to constant light, which is the standard of care, standard practice, or 12 hours of bright light, the normal light that was for everybody, and then 12 hours of dim light. It's, it's not complete darkness, it's just very dim light, 10, 15 lux, 20 lux of light. And what they found was this preemies are born between say, 30 to 36 weeks of age, uh, sorry, gestation. Um, they were released from NICU, neonatal ICU, on an average 13 days earlier because they grew, their body weight gained much faster and they grew much better and they were released. And this is impressive because just imagine every day of neonatal ICU is just pure economics is few thousand dollars. And from emotional point of view, those who had a premature baby, they know that how emotionally draining it is to see every single day your baby is in ICU 
it's very draining emotionally. So when the baby is released 12, 13, 15 days earlier than the other babies, is that the societal impact is huge. In the US, nearly 350,000 babies are born premature every year. And they stay in ICU, neonatal ICU for several days. Just imagine, there is no wonder drug. And in fact, there is no drug in clinical trial. Or there is no ongoing clinical trial for any drug that is predicted to reduce neonatal ICU stay by 10 days or more. Nothing. So this is something that can be done now based on this research finding. So that's why I think that if neonatal ICU patients are benefiting so much by bringing little sense of circadian rhythm, then why can't we apply this to ICUs in general and hospital practice in general? That will reduce cost and also improve our societal health. I've had a couple of long hospital stays. Yeah. And this is one of the things that makes me insane the way I, they would come in every two or three hours and wake me up and put some, something in me, you know, and I was just like, no, I understand. I need to rest. It's terrible. It's like torture. Yeah, it is torture. Just imagine if you take a healthy person to do the same thing, it would be. Oh, it'd make them crazy. Uh, yeah. Um, this is this is wonderful, um, Sachin. Uh, far more than expected, and um, you're such a. I, people aren't watching this; they're listening to it. But I want you to know, Sachin has the best smile. He just seems happy all the time, and I think that I don't know. I say, I my theory is happy people live long time. I don't know. Maybe that's. I don't know. Happy people live. Happy or longer time. Happy, yeah, abs- yes, yes. There's no debate on that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And have a perfect circadian day. Huge thanks to Dr. Sachin Panda. Um, wonderful guy. And I love his send-off. Have a perfect circadian day. We're going to get with Just Try This in one moment after a quick word from one of our sponsors. One of the great discoveries of last year was that Hydration is not just about drinking water. We've got to replace our electrolytes, too. Or, hey, guess what? Our brains and our bodies aren't going to work so well. My favorite electrolyte mix is Element, L-M-N-T. It's the perfect scientifically formulated mix of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to replace my electrolytes. Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist. Get a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Hey, my favorite one today is called orange salt. Check it out. Today on Just Try This, we talk a lot about walking. Walking is an amazing exercise. It's just sort of the perfect use of our bodies. But they're walking and then there's sort of conscious walking. And so if we try this today, my suggestion is as you walk, pay attention to your breathing. Are you holding your breath? Are you breathing fully? How many breaths do you take for how many steps? It's good to become aware of how we're breathing, how we're moving our bodies, and it helps us stay more in the moment. Some people call this meditative walking. 
Um, I just think it's being conscious of the world around us. It helps keep us in the moment and our brains from cycling to the past or to the future or some other things. Pay attention to your breathing. Feel your feet as they walk on the ground. Just try this. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate your time and your attention, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Sachin Panda, amazing human being. Everybody, you now have the opportunity to, guess what? Leave us up to a five-star review wherever you listen to this program and comments. We love comments. And hey, if you want to get in touch with me directly, hit me up, david at superage.com. I answer all of my email personally and promptly. Next week, we got another good one coming to you. Until then, as Dr. Ponda says, have a perfect circadian day and enjoy the rest of the week. 